For the last 15 years, I had the opportunity to go on a father-son trip, and occasionally I would bring Sarah, and we would go up to the Sierras. And I love going to the backside of the Sierras, up to 395, and up near the Mammoth area, and go hiking and fishing, and there's a place called the June Lake Loop. Are you guys familiar with that area? Absolutely gorgeous. And uh, we have been going there. We're actually going to be going in another week or two here, and we're excited about that. But I have a pic of Mount Carson. There it is, right there. Absolutely gorgeous. That mountain right there is 10,990 feet high. And you can't see there's a waterfall that you can actually hike up to. It's just breathtaking. And the shot doesn't really show it, but often that mountain will be reflected off of Silver Lake, which is the third lake in the loop. Absolutely beautiful. Along with that, I have another pic here, picture. That's near Tioga Pass, which is the back way into Yosemite. That's Rush Creek that flows into Mono Lake. And just to look out and see the vast, sheer size of the mountains. Then you see the white caps of snow on the top, and there's beautiful pine trees, and there's aspens in the fall and in the spring that, that turn colors, and it's majestic. And when you go there, you can't help but be in awe. You know, you just, you just cannot suppress looking at the beauty and just being blown away by it. And when I would take my boys up there, I would teach them in the moment, i said, say, boys, those mountains are incredible. Those trees are amazing. Look at that waterfall or that stream. And I say, you know what? Non-Christians, people who don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, they're in awe as well. They're blown away by the beauty just like you and I are. But sadly, their eyes stop right there. And they fix their eyes on the creation and they worship the creation. But we, as Christians, who know the creator of the universe through Jesus Christ, our eyes don't stop there. Our eyes continue to go up and we worship the Lord in the moment for his creation and his power and his majesty in creation. It says in Job 12, 7 through 10, this is such a great little text. But ask the animals and they will teach you or the birds in the sky, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you. Or let the fish of the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. The animals and the creation knows more than the natural man that there is a creator. The natural man knows, he just suppresses it. Psalm 96, 11, verse, uh, verses 11 and 12 say, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound. By the way, the swell has been pretty good lately and those waves have been coming in at Carlsbad and they're just pounding into the shore and you can't even take a nap. It's so powerful, you know? Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy. Psalm 19, Randy just read, the heavens declare. When you look out and, and you see the stars up, up in the Sierras and it's dark and there's no light around, the stars are just, you get really small really fast. 
and you realize, wow, I am nothing in comparison to this creation. How incredible is God that he spoke all of that into existence? That's what the psalmist is declaring. Calvin says this, the Holy Spirit calls upon the mountains, rivers, trees, rain, winds, and thunder to resound the praises of God because all creation silently proclaims him to be its maker. Up in Marietta, I love to read my Bible out in the backyard where we lived for 19 years and I had a lot of flowers and roses and different uh, trees that would flower. And I'd sit out there and I'd see the same hummingbird. And I, I knew where his nest was. It was off in this one tree to the left side of my backyard. And he'd come out of there and he'd hit a couple flowers and get some nectar. And then he'd go to this top little branch of this really tall tree. And he'd just sit up there like he was the king of the area, this tiny little guy. I'm the king. And he's perched up there. And then he'd fly down and he'd get some more nectar. And then he'd fly right back up, like rest his little heart. And he had the same course. Like every day it was the same routine. Until one day as I was reading, I hear this and I turn and he's right there. He's just hovering right there. And, and his underbelly was this bright shimmering red. And he's just sitting there. It's almost like he's saying, Stead, what are you reading? You know? What's going on right now? Are you reading Psalm 19? It's about me. It's, how, it's about him and me. And he would just be hovering there. And I'm like, how incredible is this? This little guy is just sitting right there. And then I realized after I did the little Wikipedia search, his wings are flapping 80 times a second. 80 times a second. I mean, just try it. I'm not going to do it. But, and then he does it in a figure eight. I mean, that's unbelievable. And that little bird, by its mere existence, is proclaiming the glory of God. And I would try to teach my kids, do not go through the day and not recognize all the echoes of the Creator and all that He has done. Not only would I see the hummingbird, but the lizards would come out. And they'd come out to sun because they're cold-blooded. And they need to get up on a rock and they take in the sun's rays and, and their blood gets warmed up and they can scurry all over the place. And I love uh, reptiles because they keep the bug population down, right? And I used to pick up my basketball hoop that was portable and all the crickets would scurry out and I felt like I was, look at me, I'm providing nourishment for the lizards. But, uh, but what they would do, not only would they move really fast, they could run on stucco and all that, but they'd come by and they'd start doing push-ups. And I get really insecure, like, okay, you can stop now, because I can only do six or seven at a time, and he's just going. And what is all that about? This is his territory. This is my little zone right here. Come on, Stead, let me see if you can do this many push-ups. If you can't, get out of my area. And you see the majesty of God in a little lizard. And my question to myself is, and I have these wrestles all the time, even as a believer, Lord, why, what am I called here to do? What, what have you designed me to do? That little guy is fulfilling exactly what you have designed him to do, and therefore he's bringing you glory. What have you called me to do? What have you designed me to do? Why did your son spill out his blood and die on the cross for my sins and save me 
What, what have you called me to? You see, we're rational beings. We're made in God's image. We're different than the animals in that sense, but we are his creation. And I want to join in with the rest of God's creation and bring him glory, but I cannot do that because I'm a sinner. And there's no way that sinners can join in with all of creation and bring God glory because their hearts are far from God because of sin. And Psalm 117, it's kind of a lengthy intro, gives us the thesis, if you will, for the purpose of life and why God's creation exists and why we as human beings exist and are saved. And so I wanna tackle Psalm 117. Let me read it, it's only two verses. I actually think I can do a flyover like John Rourke does, but he's masterful with all the verses that he can cover. So I figured, well, I can't do that. I'll just pick a Psalm that only has two verses and let's see how, actually, yeah, two verses. And so let's check it out. It says here, Psalm 117, now this is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy word. It says this, praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Again, this is the shortest Psalm in the Psalter. It's the shortest chapter in the Bible, but yet it's so profound. You know, Psalm 119, it took 176 verses to explain all the riches that are in there. But nevertheless, Psalm, this Psalm, with just two verses, gets to the same depth, if you will. It's just as profound. By the way, it's the same author, it's the Holy Spirit. And right smack in the middle of your Bible, almost as if it's a pinnacle of the middle of your Bible in God's creation and redemption plan is this great psalm, which really is the thesis for the Christian. It's what our purpose is. We are saved to praise and worship the Almighty. It's the thesis for the Christian life. It's the blueprint for the Christian to build upon. It's our purpose statement. In fact, I'll just give you a thesis if you want to write this down. We exist to bring praise and glory to God. That is why we are created and that's why we've been redeemed. We exist to praise God and give glory to Him. And I want to give you three points today. This Psalm teaches number one, what is praise? Two, who is to praise? And then three, why praise? What is praise, who is to praise, and why praise? All right. What is praise? Look at that first verse. It says, praise the Lord. That word praise is the word halal, which means to shine or to boast or to celebrate or to glorify. At the heart of this Hebrew word is the idea of radiance to shine forth. In our praise, we are to shine forth or make known or make much of God's greatness. And we're to reveal in our praise His majesty to all who would hear. 
Now, we like to praise things. We love to boast in things. We often talk about things that we really love, and we let other people know about those things. When I first started ministering here, I found out quickly that uh, John Rourke, Pastor Rourke, is into architecture. And one day we had some architects come that were going to help design the stage, and we were interacting with them, and all of a sudden John has this moment where he unveils that he has read this book about stairs and how to properly use stairs. Okay, and I'm like, I'm sitting there going, this is weird. I, like, I have never worked with a theologian and a pastor that's into stairs. And so he has this incredible conversation with these other architects about stairs. And he says, I've read this book. And they're like, yeah, we read that book too. And I just felt like, man, I I just want to go watch a football game right now. I just want to be normal. But uh, nevertheless, Not only did he have that interaction with them, but I actually got into his car a few days later and he had that book on audio about stairs. And I'm like, clearly this is very important to this guy and he loved to talk about it with me. And I thought this, uh, am I really destroying this point right here? I hope not. But nevertheless, we like to talk talk about that which we love. And as Christians, we are to make much of the Lord. We are to shine forth and proclaim and boast in who he is. That's the idea of halal. There's another word in this text. It says, praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. Now, this is the word shabak, and it means to address loudly, to triumph, to praise with force. One theologian from the 1600s, John Trapp, said this. It's to praise God with a violence, with all your might, and you cannot possibly overdo it. And that's what we're commanded to do with the word extol. That when we praise the Lord, yes, we make much of God and we proclaim his glories, but we also do it with a force, with a triumph. It's like a victory, a victory cry after a battle. It's a celebration in the soul that erupts in joyful praise and it cannot be suppressed. It's like when I would go to USC football game in the Coliseum to be packed, 85,000 fans, and we would score a touchdown to win the game, and everybody would stand up, and there'd be this roar, and it'd be so powerful, and you wouldn't even remember that there's another team there, that there's other cheerleaders there, and that there's an actual band from the other team, because they've just been overrun by the sheer volume and force and power of that. And that's kind of the idea of the word extol. That there should be in us this outburst of utter praise and thankfulness that cannot be suppressed. And that's what this psalm is calling us to do. Now there's two outworkings of this. Um, One is with your lips and how you speak the glories of God and then also your lifestyle. So this psalm is teaching us to proclaim the glories of God in song and with words, to declare his greatness in speech. With our lips give him what he is due. We are to offer words of thanksgiving and praise to him as the great creator and savior. We are to honor him with our lips. We are to praise him by cherishing him and treasuring him and glorifying him in our speech and making much of the Lord.
But we've also been warned by Jesus in Matthew 15, 8 and 9, when he was dealing with the Pharisees who would honor God with their lips and would come into a building like this and sing songs of praise, but yet have their hearts far from him. And he would give warning there as he would quote from Isaiah 29. And the point is that acts of praise and words of praise should flow from a heart of praise. Your hearts must be engaged and tied to the outward expressions of praise with your lips and praise with your life. So if you have a heart that loves God and you are born again and you've been washed by the blood of Christ and you've been made new, then you should live a life that verbally praises the Lord and live a lifestyle that honors him to his glory. For those of us who are married in our homes, we should be practicing praising God, praising Jesus to one another. Honey, it's amazing. Look how God answered that prayer. Look what God has done. This is amazing. You won't believe this. This happened today. I was at the gym and I prayed that that I, I would have an opportunity to share the gospel. And I got to totally share with Ryan today. And I would say, Lord, or to Jill, Isn't the Lord amazing? He answered that prayer. And I would praise God to my wife. And then she would praise him back to me. That should be happening all the time between you married folk. In your parenting. Oh, honey, come here. Look at at this. Look at this flower. Isn't it beautiful? Look at the petals. Come up and smell it. Isn't God amazing? Look what he did. He created this. The Lord, the maker of heaven, Jesus made this little flower. And you could teach your kids to praise the Lord in that moment. You can do this in all the categories of your life, at work, when somebody says, oh, you're so good at what you do, and you can turn it on a dime and say, yeah, because it's the grace of God in my life, because of what Jesus has done in your neighborhood, so forth. Colossians 3.17 says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whether in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. Notice in Psalm 117 that it says, praise the Lord at the beginning, extol him in the middle, and then praise the Lord at the end. This is profound. The whole of our day, each day, should be focused on praising the Lord when we get up in the middle of the day, at the end of the day. At the beginning of the week, in the middle of the week, at the end of the week, at the beginning of the month, in the middle of the month, at the end of the month, at the beginning of the year, the middle of the year, and at the end of the year. I am praying that at the end of my life, if there is a memorial, a celebration, that one of the marks of my life that would be recognized was that he was a man that loved Jesus and praised the Lord. And guys, we can practice Beloved, we can practice right now what we're going to be doing for all of eternity, which is praising the Lord. Morning, middle of the day, and at night. Abraham Wright says this, another theologian from the 1600s, the praise of God is here made both the beginning and the end of the psalm. To show that in praising God, the saints are never satisfied with their own efforts and would infinitely magnify him because he's infinite, even as his perfections are infinite. Here they make a circle 
the beginning, the middle, and the end, whereof is hallelujah. And I hope that that's the nature of our lives, that our lives would be consumed with the praise and the glory of God. So looking at lips and lifestyle, is there a consistent pattern of praise? Here's something to apply right in the middle of the message. A good question to ask those who are in your life or of each other at this body is this. Does my life in speech and in actions radiate and display the glory of God? Am I known as someone that often gives thanks to the Lord? Am I known as one who is joyful and happy in the Lord whenever we interact? Or is it marked by complaining, ingratitude, anger, joylessness, which are all covered by the work and blood of Jesus Christ, by the way. But we should be joyful people for what God has done and offer him praise. A little uh, comment, Spurgeon said this, as long as a man is alive and out of hell, he cannot have any cause to to complain. So that's the first uh, point. What is praise? Let's look at the second point. And this is the main thrust of the passage. Who is to praise the Lord? Who? And the the, the psalmist teaching us that God means to be praised by every nation, by people of every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. Look what it says. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. Now this is fascinating to me because the Jews would be singing this in the temple and usually it would be around the Passover. So they're singing about God being praised by the Gentiles ultimately, which is profound. And the nations here, it's a general term and it means like in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 7, it would be used of like the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Stedites, the Lockhartites, you know, people groups within the nations. Um, The word peoples there is just a general term. So nations and peoples, it could be a tribe. Um, it's usually in the plural form. So don't, don't think of nations like Germany or Mexico, but think of people groups within those nations. So God means to be praised not only by the nation as a whole, but the people groups that are represented in those nations. The psalmist is teaching that God desires to be praised not just by Israel and the Israelites and the Jews, but ultimately by all nations. God means to be praised by people from every tribe and tongue. Derek Kidner says, this tiny psalm is great in faith and and its reach is enormous. In singing this, we too are challenged not to measure God's kingship by his little flock, nor to accept the idea that different peoples have a right to different faiths. The very diversity of God's subjects comes out in the expressions, all nations and all tribes, and this variety reappears in the multitude of Revelation 7, which verse 9 and 10 say this, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cried out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God. The Gentiles would say 
salvation to our God, the same God of the Israelites who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So when Psalm 17 talks about nations and peoples, it's talking about the Balak of Pakistan, the Maninka of Guinea, the Yao of China. It's speaking of all the nations where Jesus says, all authority in heaven has been given to me on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He also said this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, Matthew 24, 14. Do you realize that there are 195 nations that are recognized? There are over 7 billion people in the world. India alone has over 2,000 ethnic groups and four different languages represented. The Southern Baptist International Mission Board calculated that there are over 11,227 different people groups in the world and less than 2% are believers. Many of them have never even heard the truth of the gospel. And so one of the callings that we have as Christians that possess the truth of the gospel is to let people know that there is a savior to let people know that there's a way to have their sins forgiven, to let people know that they can spend forever with God in heaven or in the new heavens and the new earth. And in America, because it is a melting pot of so many different nations, nationalities represented, so many people that come, they hear the truth and they go back to their families and their other, the countries that they're from and the gospel gets spread. And this morning, I want to highlight one ministry. I better drink a little bit of water before I try to pronounce this. It's Sue Refugio. Okay? Thank you. This is a ministry that exists here at our church that we support that was started by Scott and Michelle Cavandel, right? I think it was started in 2010. I may be wrong. But the aim is to preach the gospel in these three countries that they minister. And the way that they do that, they don't just go and preach and teach, which is very important, but they also rescue, feed, and equip widows and orphans in South America. And the three countries that they minister, or that that ministry exists in, is Paraguay, Argentina, and Peru. In Paraguay, there are over seven million people in Argentina, 45 million people. And then Peru, 32 million. And Psalm 117 teaches us that God means to be praised by the people of Paraguay, Argentina, and Peru. And one way you and I can join in the mission of Psalm 117 is to pray, support, and actually go on a missions trip because there's three that are coming. Yes, it worked. Check it out. We have Paraguay in July, Peru in the middle of July, and then Argent Argentina. And we have seven of you that have already committed to go, which is wonderful, and they'll take more. And if you can't go, then you can put them on your prayer list. Jill and I are, uh, by the grace of God, are sponsoring a child, and she's right there on, on our fridge. And one of the little notes, she says, I just wanna live in, I just wanna have a family. I just wanna have a family. And even just doing a little bit to help gets the gospel to these dear widows and orphans.
So out back, there's a table. This is really well done, I think. We have a table for you guys to visit all about Superfugio. Okay, you can learn on how you can support it, pray for it, and get involved. Okay, this is an awesome ministry, and I'm really thankful to highlight it. So, what is praise? It's with our lips and with our action. It brings glory to God. It radiates Him. Who is to praise? God means to be praised by the whole, our peoples of every nation and tribe. And then third, why worship the Lord or why praise the Lord? And it says here in verse 2, here's the why. For great is His steadfast love towards us. Great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. So why are we to worship? For his steadfast love. I have to think that one of my relatives helped with this translation, possibly. But nevertheless, that word there is hesed in the Hebrew, and it's a broad meaning word, okay? It could be translated loving kindness. It could be translated mercy. But nevertheless, it means God's mercy, God's kindness, his loving kindness is great towards us. It's great. The image here is of somebody strong helping somebody who is weak. That's, that's the idea of this word, has said. So God in his great mercy and love, the creator of the universe, all-powerful God, reaches down with compassion, love, and kindness to us sinners who are separated from him in our sins, helpless, no ability to get right with God. We cannot do enough good works because we've broken God's holy law. We are destitute. We are, we are destroyed. We're ruined. We have no relationship with God. But he reaches down with his reconciling heart and reconciles us to him. And in that is the Hebrew idea of God's mercy flowing to us with great strength with great strength. It's almost like it's strengthened as the verse continues on. It just flows and flows and flows to us over and over and never runs out for his mercy is great towards you and I. The second word there or idea is the word great and it means to prevail. God's mercy prevails. And the same word is used in Genesis 7 describing the floodwaters. Back in Noah's day when God judged the earth and the waters prevailed over all of the earth. And the word great is used to describe that and so, uh, our, our, describe our own sins in Psalm 65.3. It says this, that the saturation of every part of our being was consumed by sin. Our iniquities prevailed, it says, against me. So it says our sins have prevailed us we're completely depraved from our inside of our core. All of who we are is sinful, and that sin prevails over us. But then it says here that God's loving kindness and mercy prevails over that. And it throws me right to Romans chapter 5 where it says, where our sin abounds, God's mercy and grace abounds still more. It prevails over all our sin, no matter how great our sin is, how awful we have are the awful things we've done that we don't want anybody else to know, but God knows God's mercy and love and forgiveness prevails over that. That's the idea of God's mercy. It is strengthened towards us. It is great towards us. 
It's great towards Israel and it's great towards the Gentiles. Look at the second part of verse two. It says, and this, for great is his steadfast love towards us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. That could also be translated the truth of the Lord. They're very closely tied. The word is a meth. It means God's firmness, stability, faithfulness, sureness. He's the rock of our salvation. You can count on him because he's the creator and there's no sin in God. That which he dispenses is true. He's created the reality of all creation around us and the word that he's given to us in the Bible is true and the reason why it's true is because he is the source of it. He's the creator, he's the truth and from him flows truth. And the Bible says that this truth, this faithfulness of God endures forever. It lasts forever. God shall be praised because his mercy and truth is everlasting. And people from every tribe and tongue, and you and me as well, will praise God for his mercy and for his truth for all eternity. John Calvin said this, I quote him a lot here, he's so good on this psalm. He says, notice the psalmist placed mercy first in the order. I love this. He starts with mercy, why? He says, because sinful men will never praise God until they are drawn by the foretaste of mercy and goodness. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness that he would be merciful and gracious to us who aren't deserving. And the psalmist starts with that. And then coupled with truth, will alone, this coupling of mercy and truth will alone open the mouths of the mute who are muted with sin to engage in resounding praise. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ and you know that you're a sinner before a holy God, you've broken his holy law, do you know how you can participate in praising the Lord with the Jews and with the Gentiles and all his creation, you know how you can accomplish that? Well, you can't do it on your own, but somebody has done it for you. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ who was sent as our redeemer. He lived perfectly, holy, without sin, his whole life, all 33 years, never sinned once. And then he willingly, voluntarily went to the cross to pay for the sins of every person who would put their faith in him and him alone. And then he rose from the dead to prove that he is God or to demonstrate his power because he is God. And what you need to do to join in the praises of all creation is to turn from your sin and say, Lord, I want you. I'm a sinner. I believe you're the son of God. Save me from my sins and you will become a praiser and worshiper of the Lord. So what? Here's the so what. I gotta tie this in and finish up with this. This is so important. I believe this psalm is about Jesus Christ. I know it's in the Old Testament, but this psalm is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I find it fascinating that the Jews would be singing this at the Passover about the Gentiles. You see, Israel was taught by the law not to mingle or marry with Gentiles. The Jews were not to associate with pagans and idol worshipers. They viewed the Gentile nations as vile, wicked like dogs, especially in Jesus' day. There was a Jewish national bigotry 
that even despised the Samaritans, the half-breeds. No Jew went through Samaria. Remember that? John 5, the woman at the well. So is this psalm really teaching us that the God of Israel will be praised by Gentiles from every tribe and every tongue? And I say yes. And here's why it's about Jesus. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit obviously wrote the whole of the Bible, and Jesus is one with the Holy Spirit, one with the Father. But we have the Apostle Paul telling us, and Rourke has already taught us this, that in Romans 15, this psalm is about the Lord Jesus Christ because Paul says he's about, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. So how is this possible? How would the Gentiles share in the blessings of Israel? How could sinful, godless, idol worshipers ever partake in praising God? It says in Romans 15, 5 through 16, that it's because of the work of Jesus Christ. You can turn there. I don't have time to tackle it extensively, but let me highlight just a few verses here in Romans chapter 15. Now, Paul is exhorting the church to welcome Gentiles who get saved. So he's telling Jewish Christians to welcome Gentiles who become Christians. And they are to be unified in Christ, unified in worshiping God. And then we have this great verse in verse 8 where it says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness. Notice the words here. To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his what? His mercy. Here's our two words again from the Old Testament, mercy and truth. And Paul says, yes, the Gentiles are welcomed in by the work of Jesus Christ. And then he quotes four verses. He quotes Psalm 18. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again in verse 10, rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. That's Deuteronomy 32. And then in verse 11, praise the Lord. Here's our verse. Praise the Lord, all Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And then we have Isaiah chapter 11. The root of Jesse will come, the Messiah. Even who, he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles will hope. So Paul quotes from the law, he quotes from the prophets, and from the Psalms that this was the whole plan. It was God's redemptive plan that the Gentiles would be grafted in and would be a part of the worship of Christ. Galatians 3.8 says this, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham. I love that, preached the gospel to Abraham, the good news. Abraham was saved by faith, not by works. Preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 2 and 3 says, and I will make you, Abraham, a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then when he was offering up Isaac in Genesis 22, because you did not withhold your only son in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. It was God's plan from the start 
that the Gentiles, you and me, would be able to participate in worshiping and praising God. God means to be praised by people of every tribe and tongue in this world. In this world. And not only is Christ the promised one to Israel, but he's the promised savior to the Gentiles. Verse nine says this, and for the Gentiles to glorify God, they're gonna glorify him for his mercy, for his mercy and for his truth. And Psalm 117 is teaching us that God shows no partiality, that he loves people from every tribe and tongue. He loves the lost. And in verses eight and nine, we see that God wants his truth to be known and his mercy to be shown to the Gentiles. Grace and truth, which is embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. John 1:17. For Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes of the Father but by me. The only reason why the Jews can sing praises and the Gentiles can join in and praise with them. And the only reason why you and me can become true worshipers of God along with all of his creation is because of the life and death and the resurrection of God's precious son, Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you want to be among the many who will be singing praises to God for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, then turn from your sin and cry out to him. And may the praises of the Lord, for you and I here today, may the praises of the Lord be on our lips and in our hearts all the days of our lives. That is why we are here. That is why we still exist here on this earth after we're saved, that we might proclaim the glories of God and worship him. I think it would be very fitting right now to end this talk or sermon on Psalm 117 by standing up. James, are you nearby? Yes, have everybody stand up. And I believe it to be very fitting to sing with all of our hearts, with all of our might, the glory of God, and I think one of the greatest hymns ever written how great thou art. Let's sing this as a praise and as a way to glorify our great Father.